Uh, good evening. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, turn to the person next to you and ask them this question. Have you ever been disappointed by high expectations? Have you ever been disappointed by high expectations? So turn and have a chat to the person next to you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time as we gather as your people. Father, I pray that you may teach us tonight, that you may change us by the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. As we come to the book of Judges that was written a long time ago, Lord, remind our hearts that we've got so much to learn from Samson, from this book, as he teaches us about you as well as ourselves. Father, I pray that you help me to say what you want me to say. You help me to forget what I need to forget. And I pray that you be with us in this time. And I pray this for Jesus' glory, for his fame, for his name. We pray. Amen. It's great to be here. Like I said, I'm, my name is John, one of the pastors here. I haven't met you. I'd love to meet you afterwards over supper. I wonder, have you ever been disappointed by high expectations? You know, let me give you a few examples. Maybe, you know, someone's giving you some high expectations as to a movie you're going to go see, right? Maybe they told you, oh, have you seen the new James Bond? Have you seen the new Star Wars movie or the new Marvel movie? And then you're just like bitterly disappointed, right? Like I'll give you an example. Like when I saw Avengers, I was just like, oh, this is boring, right? I know maybe that offends some of you, but I'm like, if you had a Batman, Batman is so far superior. I'm just like, nah, that is boring. Or, or maybe someone's recommended to you, you know, some restaurant that's really good, you know, like the talked up Maccas heaps highly to you, you know? You've walked in, you're like, is this it? Like, is that it? Like, maybe you've been disappointed in that way. Um, let me tell you a story where I was disappointed by where I had high expectations. Uh, and uh, everyone calm down before I say this word. It had to do with my honeymoon, okay? So everyone just calm down. I'm going to keep it G-rated. You'll be okay. But uh, on my honeymoon, we went to Thailand and Sam and I are on the plane and we're picturing our hotel and we're thinking about the cocktails we're going to have in the pool. We're thinking about the sunset. You know, we're thinking about the nice you know, romantic location we're going to, right? Uh, but unfortunately, like most hotels and nice places, uh, the hotel is not next to the airport. And so when you get off the airport, you're going to bus or limousine to then go to your hotel. And so we got off uh, the, the plane... And we're waiting for our bus, and we had one of those shared shuttles where you go with someone else uh, to go to the hotel, and they go by their hotel, then your hotel. And uh, I was like, yeah, that should be you know, a pretty short ride, no drama, five minutes, should be sweet, in our hotel, we'll be fine. Anyway, what happened is we waited for the other four passengers to come off the plane, four Aussies, uh, an older couple, man and woman, a younger couple, man and woman. And uh, unfortunately, they had been drinking, uh, so a bit intoxicated. Uh, and basically, the, there's also a bit of tension between these two couples. You see, uh, the mother was actually so the older couple, one was the mother of the son of the younger couple. Okay, so, so the mom, she had a, bo- a boyfriend and the son, he had a girlfriend. It was a bit of tension in the air. And uh, so I said to Em, my new wife, I'm like, babe, I don't think this is worth it. Let's just catch a taxi. She's like sweet and innocent. Like, oh, what's the worst could happen? So I'm like, all right, sweet, no worries. Got on the bus, uh, and then for about 20 minutes, uh, in particular, the mother and the son are just going at it. They're just yelling at each other, just swearing at one another, just threatening to kill each other. And then after 20 minutes, it happened. The mom grabbed the young girl by the hair, pulled her, and just started slapping her, going crazy, cat fight in the middle of this bus trip. I just yell at the driver, pull over, he pulls over, the woman grabs the girl by her hair, drags her throughout the corridor, out onto the footpath. I'm going out there trying to break that up, the sun's coming up trying to break it out, and I'm just yelling at the bus driver, go get another car so I can break up these crazy people, and um, I'm just like freaking out. Meanwhile, Emma's on the bus, she's safe, uh, and if you're wondering, what about that other older dude? Yeah, good question, right? Uh, he's doing nothing, so I go back on the bus, I'm like, what is wrong with you? Go 
do something. This is your family. And he's like, man, they're always like this. I'm like, you guys are, you guys are crazy, right? Um, so then eventually the car comes and I'm like, I really want to get on that car with Emma, but I didn't. I'm like, young couple, you go. I'll deal with your crazy mom. Get back on. And she's just crazy. And I'm like, got my bride. And I'm just new and protective. And I'm just like, oh man, you like, oh, things didn't go expected, right? I had high expectations and I should have. It's my honeymoon. And it was bitterly disappointing on that night. Now, we come to the book of Judges. Come to the book of Judges. And tonight, we're coming across the 12th judge, Samson. We're coming across a judge who literally has a whole chapter um, dedicated to his birth, right? Like he is prophesied to come. This is a guy who has four chapters in the book of Judges. He's the last judge. And so our expectations of him are quite high, right? Spoiler alert, he's going to disappoint. He's going to disappoint us quite severely. You see, what we're going to see is he might have some cool stories. He might tear literally a line apart. Uh, he may, you know, kill a lot of men with a donkey's jawbone, but all he's got is cool stories. At the end of the day, what we'll learn about next week is he ends up killing roughly in total about 6,000 Philistines, which don't get me wrong, right? That's, that's an impressive effort. But in comparison to the other judges and what they do, what he does is barely nothing, especially for the strength that he has. And now maybe you're thinking, okay, all right, we just spoiled this you know, story for us. You know, why do we need to stay here? Why can't we just go home already? Well, the reality is, is that we've got so much to learn from Samson. And we've got so much to learn from the Israelites in this story. For the reality is, it's just like Samson, you and I can be disappointed. We can disappoint others, we can disappoint God, we can even disappoint ourselves. And so tonight, let's learn from Samson and let's learn about our great and glorious God who doesn't disappoint us. And let's begin by looking at chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1, it should come up on the screen, it says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Let's stop there. I've got two observations for you. The first one is that line, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You should have seen that a few times by now. You should have seen it seven times throughout the book of Judges, and this is the last time you'll see it in the book of Judges. You see, after this line, in chapter 17, we're going to come across a different line. And it comes up on the screen, and it'll say this. It's saying, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit in the NIV. Now, I don't like to do this, but uh, the Bible was written in two different languages. Originally, in the Hebrew for the Old Testament, and the Greek for the New Testament. And so, any English translation you have in front of you, or on the screen, is a translation. And so, sometimes, the translations can maybe do a better job. NIV is a great Bible, that's why we use it, but in this line, unfortunately, it misses the mark. And so I actually prefer what the ESV says, which is another great translation. And so let me read to you chapter 17, verse 6 in the ESV. Roughly goes like this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. You see, this is the tragedy of the book of Judges. Throughout the book of Judges, Israel continues to deteriorate. That's why we see more and more rubbish on the side in our decorations to try and illustrate that to you. And as that goes on, we're told that what the actions they're doing are wicked in the eyes of the Lord. But as we get to this point in the book of Judges, for some reason we don't see what is good in the eyes of the Lord. We only care about what the Israelites see. And that's because the Israelites are starting to not care about what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. They just think about what is good in their own eyes. A lesson for us to learn. Because the reality is, is that sin... It's a matter of what's in God's eyes, not matter what's in our eyes. You see, how often do we care about our own view of our own selves rather than care about God's view of us and how we live? And so it's important we pick up on that observation. But secondly, let's talk about the Philistines. The Philistines. Maybe you've heard of the Philistines. Maybe you've read a kid's book and you've learned about Goliath, you know, a really big dude, even bigger than me. Um, and you probably think that these guys are a bunch of barbarians. 
But the reality is, is the Philistines were actually quite sophisticated. You see, um, the reality is, is that in Samson's day, the Philistines were, I guess, in particular ahead of the game when it comes to weaponry, architecture, and culture, far beyond any other civilization around them. They're the first um, civilization to find iron and to use it, in particular to use it in weapons. They're also the first culture to use battle formations in war. On top of that, in regards to architecture, they were building multi-story buildings while the Israelites were busy in their teepees, patting their sheep. Uh, This this culture was ahead of the Israelites. They were extremely sophisticated, but on top of that, they were also extremely depraved. You see, their culture and their civilization was based on piracy and conquest, just like the Vikings, if you know who they are. And this meant that their parties were known for their debauchery and for their looseness. In particular, they were famous for holding a week-long drinking fest, I guess similar to schoolies. On top of this, though, because our military culture, they were unspeakably cruel, and they actually had a tradition of mutilating the genitalia of their enemies. With such oppression in mind, such a pretty wicked nation in mind, let's have a look at verses 2 to 3, and let's see how the Israelites cry out to the Lord. Let me read out to you, verses 2 to 3. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless. You are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Hopefully you notice what's missing here. Throughout all the stories in the book of Judges, it begins with rebellion. We learn about the Israelites rebelling. We learn about how God uh, responds in retribution and punishment. But then the third R we see is repentance. But not here. Not here. You see, the Israelites don't even repent out to God, which just shows to us how glorious our God is, doesn't it? That even when his people don't cry out to him in repentance, he still initiates salvation. He still comes to them and loves them and demonstrates his grace towards them. I hope you notice that. But also, I hope you notice in this story, I've already mentioned that, that this is uh, a first time we see that there's a birth narrative about a judge. You see, we don't see that in the rest of the book of Judges. We just see, hey, there's Deborah, hey, there's Ophniel, how there's Gideon. We don't know anything about their childhood, their birth, their parents, nothing. But for Samson, we, we get introduced to his parents. And what we see is that God makes him from scratch. That out of a barren woman, God creates Samson to go save his people. And once again, this is why it builds anticipation as to what Samson's going to do. Another observation to point out, though, is notice how this promise is given to a barren woman. You see, barrenness today, but as well as a few thousand years ago, was ultimately devastation for a family. Walter Brueggemann, uh, who's an Old Testament scholar or theologian, a geek basically, uh, he's got this great quote, quote about barrenness that I read this week, which is helpful. He said, Barrenness in ancient texts symbolizes hopelessness, for without children, there's no foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, or for your people. You see, God comes to a hopeless woman living in a hopeless nation under the oppression of the Philistines, and he gives hope. He gives hope. But also, notice how this woman is anonymous. We don't know her name, which is a bit strange, because we know the name of the father, we know a few other details, but we don't know the name of this woman. And to be honest with you, I think it's because the author doesn't want us to be focusing on this woman. He wants us to be focusing on the God who is creating Samson. But then finally as well, notice how this woman most likely is probably not a seeker. We'll see this later on, but actually I don't necessarily think this woman is a God-seeking woman. And so God goes to this barren woman who's not a seeking him, just like he goes to a barren nation that also is not seeking him. And that brings me to lesson number one. Lesson number one. We're learning lots of lessons in the book of Judges, and this is the first one for tonight. Salvation is God's initiative. Salvation is God's initiative. 
You see, I don't want us to miss the bareness of this situation. Israel has been oppressed for 40 years by an incredibly powerful nation. In regards to human odds, they had no chance of being saved from this oppression. And then add to the terrible odds, they didn't deserve God's rescue. They didn't deserve God to come deliver them. Like they, did, they were doing evil, but then on top of that, they weren't even crying out in repentance. Their own evil become right in their own eyes. I could be wrong in saying this, but my guess is they're probably syncretized to their culture around them. They've probably gotten used to the Philistines and their culture and grown to like it. But God initiates salvation. God doesn't let his people go, but God brings hope to the hopeless. He brings salvation to a people who are even not crying out in repentance. You see, church, it's, it's important that we grasp this important truth of the gospel. Is that God doesn't go to the lovely, God makes lovely. He makes the lovely those he loves. He doesn't choose the righteous. He makes righteous those he chooses. Salvation is God's initiative. Which means no matter who you are, no matter what circumstances you've gone through, no matter what what mistakes you've made in this life, there is hope. There is rescue. There is salvation on offer as long as you receive it and don't try to earn it. Salvation is God's initiative. He chooses whom to save. He doesn't necessarily save the good or the strongest, but instead he saves those who are his, those who he's chosen to save. I loved the song that we had first, Grace Alone. It's a great song which talks about the, pre, uh, the topic of predestination. Maybe that's a big topic that you don't know about, or if you do, you're confused about. Uh, another word for that would be election, or maybe just the sovereignty of God. It can be a confusing topic, but church, it's important we understand something about the character of God. He's not a salesman trying to persuade people to love him. He's a father that is looking for his lost children. God initiates salvation. God initiates salvation. It's important we understand that. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Let's have a look at verses 4 to 7 in particular. Now, it says this, See to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He'll take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looks like an angel of God. Very awesome. I love that. I didn't ask him where he came from. and He didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You'll become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy would be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of flesh. I mentioned before that this woman was a God-seeking woman. I believe that because if she was, she wouldn't have to be told to not eat anything unclean. But because she's being told that, most likely it's because she was. Now, let's talk about the Nazarite vow in particular. The Nazarite vow, because this is really key. In Numbers chapter 6, which is actually a book of the Bible before the book of Judges, we learn about the Nazarite vow. And basically what it was, it was a voluntary, temporary vow that people would make because they wanted to dedicate some time to the Lord. And specifically, it involved three rules. Three rules. The first rule was abstinence from any strong drinks or drinks at all or any food from the vine. Okay, so no wine, no grapes, on and on I can go. The second rule was no cutting of the hair. No cutting of the hair. And the third rule was no touching of any carcasses. Any carcasses, human, animals, nothing. Now what's curious about Samson's story is that actually he is meant to take the vow from birth. This is not a temporary vow, but it's a lifelong vow. And you're wondering, why does he do this? Why does he want Samson to do this? Well, it's important you understand that the judges were meant to be not just military leaders, but also spiritual leaders. 
They were meant to be holy. They were meant to be set apart from God's people. They were meant to demonstrate righteousness and what it looks like to follow God. You see, in other words, once again, our expectations should be building about this Savior, this Deliverer. And so when we are disappointed and we discover how unrighteous Samson is, in many ways, these vows can give us an indication as to the downward trajectory of Samson's heart when he breaks them. And so what happens next? Well, verses 8 to 11, the angel comes and speaks to the barren woman. She promises, he promises to throw this miraculous birth of a savior, which is very similar to the birth of Jesus. You didn't know that. The husband called Manoah prays that the angel will come back, give him more direction. And this is what he says in verse 12. He says, what is to be the rule that governs this boy's life and work? Okay, so, so Manoah is basically like, man, how are we going to raise this kid? Like, I need more details, right? Like, what's going to be his bed routine? Should he go to private school? Should he go to public school? Should I homeschool him? You know, like, uh, should, what sports should he play? Should he play any sport? What food should he eat? Should he eat meat? Should he not eat meat? Like, what TV does he watch? Like, what's his workout routine going to be? Like, give me some details. This is stressful stuff. I've got to raise a savior. And look, can I be honest with you? I, I'm a dad of two, almost three. Uh, one's almost about to drop. Um... And uh, my, second young, my second son, Isaac, this week, like, I thought we'd master toilet training. Oh, man, I was wrong. You know, like, I thought he was in bed, and then five minutes later, I walk into my laundry, and there's just poo everywhere. You know, like, being a dad is difficult when you're just trying to raise normal children. Like, I love them, but they're just normal, ordinary children, let alone a savior, a savior. And so he asks for explanation. He asks for details. He asks for help. He asks for the angel's name in particular, and this is how the angel replies in verse 18. He says, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took the youngest goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing. While Manoah and his wife watched, as the flame blazed upon, uh, up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended into the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah, and his wife, Manoah, realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. That brings me to lesson number two. Lesson number two. God prefers to give revelation over explanation. God prefers to give us revelation over explanation. He said, this is so typical of how God works. When we have these questions, when we're after details, God reveals himself to us. Think of the book of Job. If you don't know the book of Job, basically there's a dude who was suffering and he was asking God a lot of questions. And in the book, God doesn't show up and answer his questions. Instead, God just shows up and just talks about his greatness and his wisdom. And that is enough for Job. You see, we want the details. We want our questions answered. We want to know, you know, how was the world created? Give us every single detail. We want to know why is this suffering? Explain to us everything. We want to know what is the plan for our life? God, whom should I marry? What, what job should I do? Where should I live? Where should I go? We want to know the details. But God replies to Manoah and to us by revelation. It's revealing who he is. He basically says to us, hey, look, some things are beyond your understanding. So trust me. And so, look, don't get me wrong here. Now, tonight, if you have some doubts about Jesus, if you've got some doubts about the Bible, if you've got some questions, please ask them. Please research them. Please read about them. We normally have Q&A. We won't tonight. We don't have time. But know this. Some things are beyond your understanding. There's some things you will never know. And so you'll have to trust someone, be it that scientific author that you read in a book or the God of the universe who died for you. You see, church, we can trust our God with questions we don't know the answers to in a future that seems uncertain because God has revealed himself to us by his word and in his son Jesus, in particular at the cross. 
And so right now, if, you're, if you've got questions about your life, doubts, if you're just struggling or, or if you're wrestling and you want to know the details, can I actually encourage you to ask God to reveal himself to you? Ask him this week by his word, by his spirit to reveal to you his goodness, his greatness, his wisdom. Not so you may know everything, but so you may trust him. Because God prefers to give us revelation over explanation. Revelation over explanation. Let's, uh, let's keep on going. In particular, let's meet Samson and let's read verses 1 to 3. Here he is, the judge. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman whom he... Re- uh, sorry, young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Tamar. Now get her as my wife for me. Now some of you single men here are thinking, oh man, that'd be awesome. Imagine if dating was like that. You know, hey dad, that one over there. Yeah, the, yeah, the pretty one. Go, make her my wife now. Sweet. So... How do Samson's parents reply? Well, I want you to keep this in mind. They're expecting Samson to be this deliverer who's going to save them from the Philistines, fight the Philistines, but instead he wants to marry one. This is what they say, verse 3. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Now, how is Samson going so far? Is he living up to these high expectations or is he disappointing us? Well, I think what we're seeing here is that his lustful thoughts and his arrogance is disappointing us. Now you're thinking, what do you mean by arrogance? Well, back in that culture, arranged marriages was a norm. But back then, the parents would arrange the marriage. So if a son was to demand his father to go grab a wife, that would be an arrogant thing and he would be disciplined in that culture. But even worse than disrespecting his parents, Samson rebels against God's commands Throughout the Old Testament, God prohibits his people from intermarrying with different nations that have different faiths. Let me give you an example of this from the book of Exodus. Uh, It says this in chapter 34, verses 15 to 16. He says this to God, God says this to his people. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you'll eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to the gods, they'll lead your sons to do the same. Truth be told, there's a similar principle in the New Testament for Christians. As Paul says, that Christians should not date or marry non-believers. For if you do, you'll be led astray, just like the Israelites were led astray by the other nations. And the reality is, is that the tragic story of Samson is a testimony to this fact. And look, maybe, Joel, you can think of a few flirt-to-convert stories, but I tell you what, I can give you five more flirt-to-fall-away stories. The reality is, is, since I've been in ministry, or since I've been a Christian, I can think of countless people who have walked away for Jesus, for someone else instead. And look, can I, can I actually be direct here, a bit more poignant? Uh, in particular, women. Man, this is a huge temptation for you. I, I, I can't think of one man that I've seen walk away for Jesus for a non-Christian girl. And yet I can think of heaps of women who have done this, sacrificed Jesus for a relationship. And so look, can I, can I remind you of, of the Bible's teaching, but can I, can I also remind you what is best for you? That you're better off if you're a single woman waiting for that Christian man, or you even get this, you're even better off being alone your whole life with Jesus. With Jesus, loving him as your saviour and king. And so wait, trust in your saviour, Follow him. But also Christian men, like, can we learn from Samson? 
Like, can we not be arrogant like him? Can we not just look at women like the rest of the world and just demand that they become ours? Can we not be shallow, but actually get to know women and actually try and treat them and, suppose, and I guess, invest in them and get to know them like God wants you to get to know them? I'm getting a bit of tangents here, but look, can, can we just learn from this rather than look at it and laugh? Let's keep going. Let's look at verses 5 to 10. Verses 5 to 10. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. <laughs> Apparently you tear apart young goats with your hands back then. Uh, but he neither told his father nor his mother what he had done. And then he went down and he talked to the woman and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they ate it too. But he did not tell them that they had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Let's stop there. What we see here is a sampler of Samson's strengths. Like literally the guy tears apart a young lion. Like, anyone done that recently, this week? No? Next one? No? Okay. Like, it's quite obvious that Samson has got incredible strength. This is what we see here. Samson has the power of the Holy Spirit, equipped by God to do incredible things. And so, once again, we should have high expectations of this man and the strength that he has. Like, if Gideon, remember Gideon, weak little Gideon, he was able to kill 130,000 people with only 300 men. Surely Samson can do much more. But unfortunately, he disappoints us. In particular, he touches the lion's carcass. You remember how I said before, Nazarites were not, uh, the Naz- when you take the Nazarite vow, you're not meant to touch any animal at all. And this is why he doesn't tell his parents, because he's being sneaky. But to make matters worse, after touching the lion's carcass, he, ha- he marries this woman and has a feast. And the Hebrew word here, mishter, refers to a drunken party, one of those week-long drunken feasts that the Philistines would have had. And so Samson breaks another vow in touching alcohol. And what happens next? Well, after a few vows, uh, vows, a few beers, sorry, uh, Samson goes to the Philistines, you know, his new family members, so to speak, and he uh, makes a bet with them, in particular over a riddle. And when he says to them, I've got this riddle, and if you solve this riddle, then I'll give you 30 pieces of linen and 30 pieces of garment, I mean garments, but if I win, then you're going to give me these 30 pieces of uh, clothes. And so what happens is he tells them the riddle. It's quite a good one. I'm guessing most of us probably would not have solved it. Uh, and what he says is this. He says, uh, out of the lion, something to eat. Um, out of the strong, something sweet. And after four days, the Philistines, they wrestle. They, you know, they try to think through intellectually, you know, what is the riddle? What is the answer? And then they get angry. They're probably drunk. So they're probably over it. And so what they do is they go to Samson's new wife and they threaten her. They say, you tell us the riddle or we'll kill you. And so what we read is then in verse 17, 18, it says this. She uh, cried the whole seven days of the feast because she went to Samson and he didn't tell her. And so on the seventh day, he, that Samson, finally told her. He gave in because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to Samson, what is sweeter than a honey? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson said to them, if you are not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Now, two lessons here, men. Uh, number one, don't let anyone plow with your wife. And number two, don't ever call her a heifer. That's just incredibly wrong. 
after Samson, after this happens and the riddle is solved, Samson gets angry. And so what does he do? Does he just go and, you know, go to the store and Woolworths and get these 30 pieces of clothing? No, he hates the Philistines. So he goes and he kills another 30 Philistines, grabs their clothes, and then goes, gives it to the Philistines who he owes it to. He's pretty furious. So once again, we see that Samson disappoints. And that's chapter 14, roughly, in a summary. And so what are some other lessons we can learn from Samson and the Israelites? Well, two more. First lesson is this is that God is faithful to his people even when they're not faithful to him. That God is faithful to his people even when they're not faithful to him. You see, this story makes it so clear to us that our God is a faithful God, that he's willing to work through the messiness of Samson and bring about deliverance to the nation he promised to give. You see, God will use the very weakness of Samson, his fraternization with the Philistines, his sexual appetite, his vindictiveness and temper to bring about the confrontation between Israel and Philistine that was so badly needed. And in verse 4, we get a clue of this, as we're told that the Lord is behind all of this that is going on. You see, God is so faithful to his promises that he even fulfills them when sin is going on. He even fulfills them throughout sin and brings about deliverance. You see, church, we see this in particular in Samson's story. But most importantly, be reminded we see this at the cross. Remember, as the wicked men... You know, to trial Jesus, put him on the cross, called to crucify him. God worked through those wickedness to deliver even the men who were nailing those nails to the cross of Christ. You see, church, it's like God is faithful to us even when we fall short and not faithful to him. He promises our salvation through Christ and spiritual blessings in him. And so, look, I know some of you maybe are struggling Maybe you're wrestling with the world and sin just like Samson. And I want you to know that God knows this. That God knows. He knows what's going on in the depths of your heart. He knows and he's working through this and wants to work through it and bring you joy. He wants you to come before him and not hide from him. And that he's, he's, not, he's not ashamed of you. But he sees you in Christ Jesus if you have faith in him. You see, church, you can never outsin the grace of God. Our God is that glorious and that great. He can work through the messiness of the life of Samson to bring about his plans and his purposes, and he can do the exact same through us. His Spirit wants to work through us. Sinners like you and me. I'm so thankful for that. Church, may we never forget God is faithful to his people even when we fall short and not faithful to him. Because remember, salvation is his initiative. But lesson number four, lesson number four, everyone will disappoint you, but Jesus, everyone will disappoint you, but Jesus. Like I said, man, Samson, he's the last judge in the book of Judges. What Mark, uh, sorry, next week, Matt will continue to talk about Samson. The week after that, Mark is just going to, I've thrown him a hospital pass, man. He's just going to be looking at the chaos that ensues throughout the book of Judges and civil war that happens. Samson is the last guy in the book of Judges. Like He can literally tear lions apart, right? Our expectations should be high for this man. And he disappoints. He disappoints his parents. You know, like his parents are like, man, like this, this guy, he was created by God. You know, like we're being faithful parents. We have high expectations for this guy. He disappoints his parents. In many ways, he disappoints God. He disappoints his nation. He disappoints his wife. He continues to disappoint you see, in many ways, we're hoping to see probably the most righteous character in the book, but instead what we come across is the most flawed character in the book, a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature, and selfish man. The irony was is that Samson was strong on the outside, but he was weak on the inside. Weak on the inside. He lacked discipline, conviction, obedience, 
love and humility. And so church, this is a lesson we can never forget. Everyone will disappoint you but Jesus. Everyone. No man, no woman, no boss, no best friend, no child, no work colleague. No one will not disappoint you. I have to be more clear in this. Even your own self is going to disappoint yourself. Matter of fact, you probably disappoint yourself more than anyone else in your life. I know personally, I turned I turn 30 uh, this week on Monday. Uh, and when you turn, th- I feel like when you're like in your teenagers, uh, teenage years, you don't really like get to choose what you do in life. You know, your parents send you to school. So you don't really like, there's no high expectations on you. You go to uni and like still like you're bumming around, no offense, and just studying and like, but you don't have high expectations, right? You're at uni, you're learning, you don't need to conquer the world. And then your first year or two out of uni, you start to like, you're like, oh, I'm new, I'm a graduate, right? I'm still finding my feet. And, and then a few years after that, like your mid twenties and then when you take your 30 and beyond, you started to think about what am I doing with my life? You know, and it's not just the expectations of those around you. Actually, a lot of them are unspoken. It's the expectations within yourself. And the reality is, I can speak by experience, we disappoint ourselves. But more than that, don't we disappoint those around us like Samson? And yet, here's the good news. is that Jesus doesn't disappoint. And then get this, he makes up for our disappointment. Like, like, how, like how amazing is our Savior? What, what I love about actually the story of Samson is how much it points us to Jesus. Like there's so many parallels here. Let me, let me go through them. You see, like Samson, Jesus' birth was a miracle. Like Samson, Jesus was prophesied to be a Savior, a Deliverer, a Rescuer. Like Samson, Jesus' strength came from the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Samson, Jesus saves many more through his death than through his life. Like Samson, Jesus boldly faces the enemies of God. But then unlike Samson, whose birth brought joy and honor in the midst of shame, Jesus' birth brought disgrace to Mary. Samson's birth brought celebration and honor while Jesus was born into poverty and shame. Unlike Samson, Jesus never compromised. He'd keep every law of of God. He He was without sin. Instead of being controlled by his impulses, Jesus was controlled by the will of God. And even though Jesus was entitled to the throne... He would not take on that role, but instead took on a servant who went to the cross. Here's the punching truth. You and I are like Samson. We disappoint God and others just like him. Maybe not to the same scale, but we do. And yet, like I said, the greatest news of the gospel is that salvation is God's initiative. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the salvation is on offer because God is not about rewarding those who have done well. In fact, he's about saving broken sinners who are weary and weak who receive the good news of the gospel by faith. May we praise our Savior, who became weak so we may become strong, who became sin so we may become righteous. Church, we have a perfect Savior to put our hope in, who doesn't disappoint but meets our high expectations. And so, if you're someone who is feeling a bit disappointed with yourself, feeling the weight of your life, can I encourage you to take your eyes off yourself and put your eyes on your Savior? He will never disappoint. See, I entitled this sermon, even though it doesn't really matter titles of the sermon, but I titled this one, Delight to Disappointment. Delight to Disappointment, because chapter 13 is delight. This baby is born. Chapter 14 is disappointment. The reality is, is you and I, we're going to come across disappointment, but we can come across delight if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is worthy of our worship, which is what we're going to do now. What we're going to do now is we're going to praise God for He is awesome. 
and he is worthy of our praise. And we're going to do this in one of three ways. Uh, to begin with, we're going to sing. So in a moment, when I pray, the band's going to get up and they're going to lead us in singing to our glorious God. We're going to sing that song or come to the altar again, which is a new song. If you're wondering about those lyrics, so come to the altar, what does that mean? Let me explain that to you. Uh, some churches sing that song to encourage people to come down the front and respond to faith in Christ. Uh, that's a good thing, but we're not going to do that tonight. But instead, let me explain to you the altar. You see, the altar was a place where people make sacrifices to God for their sin. And it was a place where God interacted with humans and where they'd find forgiveness for their sin and devote their life to God. But of course, in the New Testament, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that dies on the ultimate altar. And so the good news is that we don't have to make sacrifices ourselves. The ultimate sacrifice is done. And so when you think of that song and you think of those lyrics that come to the altar, know that there's a lot of biblical meaning behind it. An altar is mentioned even in this chapter here. But remember this, that as, as we think and sing those lyrics, that what it's saying there is come to Christ, come to his altar, the ultimate sacrifice for your sin. We're going to sing, but also we're going to give. Offertory bags are going to be at the front. If you're a regular here, you can give physically in cash or you can do so digitally on your phone. There's details in the bulletin for uh, electronic transaction. And thirdly, though, we're also going to take in communion. Communion is a time where we remember and we reflect upon Christ and what he did at the cross, and we proclaim the gospel. We remember how his body was broken. That's what the bread represents. But we also remember how his blood was shed. That's what the the juice represents in front of us. And I want you to know this, that if, if you're not a believer here tonight, if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, can I encourage you not to come down the front? Because this is an opportunity for Christians to come down the front and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I may be weak, but you can make me strong by your spirit. Help me to follow you all my days. And know this, that there's nothing magical about this juice and this bread. It's just juice and bread. It's symbolic. It represents our declaration to Jesus. And so can I encourage you to do that? I'm going to pray now. And after I pray, the man, like I said, is going to get up. And they're going to to give you like 20 seconds as well to sit there in silence, to reflect and to think about how you're like Samson but then also to reflect and think about how great is our Saviour, Jesus. And then I encourage you to come, take communion. There's going to be two songs, so take your time, no big rush. How about I pray? Father God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus, the perfect Samson, the man who was weak that became strong by the power of the Holy Spirit, the man who obeyed you perfectly, our God, our awesome God, Lord, the reality is, is that we disappoint ourselves, we disappoint you, and we disappoint others. The reality is, Lord, is that we are like Samson, and that we need grace, we need mercy, we need forgiveness that you offer to us through Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who hasn't declared their faith in you, I pray, Lord, that you work through their heart by your Spirit to help them see the joy it is to follow you, the eternal life that's on offer. And for those of you, for those of us, sorry, who are following you, help us, Lord, to take our eyes off ourselves and to put it on our Saviour. And to know that there is better to come, that heaven is coming and it will be glorious as we praise our glorious King. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.